0: It made me be less fearful of sucking at first, because you just have to suck at something when you when you first do it. You're going to having the space to suck and kind of take <laughs> to embody sucking and to kind of get hold critiques and to like learn. and having that space to do that was, I think really I would have been completely petrified to do anything that wasn't absolutely airtight, perfect et cetera, et cetera. It made me get over my own perfectionism.
1: That was a clip from today's guest, Nathan Lane. Uh, Nathan is an associate professor for the Department of Economics at the University of Oxford. This is a super cool conversation because Nathan actually kind of flipped the script on me a bit and started basically interviewing me and talking about the business. And it really moved from the traditional style where I talked to someone about them and their growth and their role of leadership to really just talking about me, cadence, but also just the general idea of business and that really interesting transition point from what you learn in punk and hardcore and how you bring that into your professional career and how effectively you can take something from the small little community and use it to create change in quote unquote, the real world. So of course, Nathan, you know, despite his professional background, he's also from like the punk and hardcore scene. He has a very interesting Twitter handle and uh, is just a really, really cool person. In fact, we liked our conversation so much and we kind of got so far into it that we've decided that we're going to have a part two. So this is part one of our episode with Nathan. Part two is going to come later on. And before we get into it, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. back everybody welcome to the show and today we've got an incredible guest someone that i'm really psyched someone with a very cool unusual in its uh directness twitter handle the one the only nathan lane nathan welcome to the show
0: thank you for having me delighted to be Uh, here
1: awesome okay there's a lot of stuff we're going to talk about in this next while and also just for the for the listener here we're taking on a bit of a new format we're going back to a longer format because i was just finding myself getting these cool conversations with people but then like i'm getting that kind of like wrap it up signal from patrick who sits across from the uh, from me on the computer and i didn't want to wrap it up so we've decided to go a longer format so that we can just talk to people so today we're going to cover of course we're going to talk about like leadership we're going to talk about what nathan does for uh for a living we're going to talk about where we grew up punk hardcore all of that kind of stuff and we're gonna allow ourselves to really just enjoy the conversation. And I hope you get as much out of it as I, as I believe you will. So uh, Nathan, you're an associate professor at Oxford University uh, teaching economics. So tell us about that, like what is that like?
0: It's very strange. So I, I'm a relatively new professor here. I started a year ago and I started in lockdown. So what, what it's like is I have a very distorted view of it all, but that's to say it's very strange. It's a very particular institution um i love it it's 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 weird and and wonderful and i'm surrounded by um amazing interesting odd odd people and it's 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 a blast so far
1: okay so you came up grew up in like punk and hardcore i is that did right?
0: yes i did i did i did i grew up in um the hardcore scene the punk and hardcore scene in in the u.s south in a Mainly in Florida, Florida, Georgia area, mainly mm-hmm. in kind of central, central Florida. Um, yeah, that's my background through and through.
1: So what were the bands, the local bands for you?
0: So we didn't, we, we were unfortunate that we didn't have at that time great local bands. We yeah. had around us, around in Florida at that time, it'd probably be, um, I guess, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, Reversal Man, Ass Suck. Uh-huh. um, where Fear and Weapons meet, uh, mm-hmm. down south. Ooh, until the end. Um, as you can see, it's super eclectic, and the stuff going on in Gainesville, which was um, uh, hot, hot water music, uh, Asshole Parade. Um, it was a kind of cornucopia of a very diverse music within the parameters and punk and hardcore, which then was pretty expansive. So, yeah. yeah. Well, first what of all, about-
1: let's just talk about asshole parade. What a name. Like
0: I've never heard that band,
1: but I, I, I had forgotten (laughs) that, but that name hits me just like it did when I was younger. I was like, yeah, that's a, that's a good statement. I'm telling you that the the minute we're done, I'm going to go listen to asshole parade for the first time. Just, just based off this conversation.
0: Great, great, fast, hardcore, great, fast, hardcore to skateboard too. It's
1: fantastic. What if it was just like really, Soulful indie rock
0: yeah, the, like completely incongruent but what, where did you what where did you grow up yourself
1: I grew up, I was born in Montreal, I okay. grew up in Calgary, and then I moved to Vancouver in nineteen ninety six or nineteen ninety seven to go to university
0: okay. and I stayed here okay, okay, what was the scene like what 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 bands I can kind of place some in my mind? But what were okay. the bands that kind of drew you in at that time? Presumably you might've been into stuff before then. Uh, this is a great question.
1: Uh-huh. So I got into, um, you know, I, I'm a child of the eighties. I was yeah. born in the seventies and like, kind of like got into music in the eighties. And like any kid I, uh, of that time, I liked, like the first tape I ever got was the Miami vice season two soundtrack for my parents cr- for Christmas
0: that's incredible. That's,
1: that's oh, great. Uh, yeah. That's... i played that thing over and over and over. Like it had like, it had like that the current hits, it was, it was great. And it also had like Yan hammer on it and, and all of this stuff, like <laughs> stuff like when you're a little kid and you get this idea of what, like being an adult would be like, you know, you yeah. wear a lot of sunglasses and a lot of pastel colors. Anyways, Blazers. totally. Um, but I guess what my gateway to, like, more aggressive music would probably be... I got into skateboarding, and skateboarding really brought me in. But, like, it was kind of weird. No, well, not kind of weird. It was, I think it was pretty normal. But I, I found stuff like DRI. I found, yeah, you know, yeah. like, DRI was, like, a really, really big one. Because, you know, remember the, when you were a kid, you saw those shirts everywhere, the DRI shirts. So I was really into DRI. I was in Suicidal Tendencies. Um, I was also into, like, kind of, like, early Megadeth, Metallica, But oddly enough, like Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction really got me into like grittier, harder music because like listening to that record, like let's say you had just taken a shower and then you put on that record. By the end of that record, you felt like you need to take a shower again. It was just like a grimy record. And it really drew me into even though it was a major, major label record and was a huge record, it kind of got me interested in like kind of like, I guess like darker music and grimey music. So I got way into punk and way into metal. So that was definitely a part of it for sure.
0: I could see aesthetically being a gateway into that both mm-hmm. like aesthetically like kind of fashion. Of course, knowing full well, like that's another world from punk, but mm-hmm. the grit, the kind of grittiness, mm-hmm. the riffs, didn't they, they mm-hmm. even did, didn't they even like have, I, I got into hardcore through like, or I got into punk through like really basic, through like finding sex pistols, tapes and stuff like mm-hmm. that. like, like, uh, Lingering around, but I remember. I think did they have a? I think they had Steve Jones, the Sex Pistols guitarist. I think did stuff with them, mm-hmm. and I feel like some punk was kind of shining through that sound a bit. I don't know. I know Metallica. You know, I, I, maybe 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 I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But I remember there being this kind of like aesthetic bleed over there that I thought, I think so.
1: I think that's a reasonable thing to say because just like you were saying, the guys with Metallica were wearing like you know, misfit shirts. Exactly. You know, I found a ton of stuff. I mean, I found a ton of stuff through skateboarding, but it was more like the obvious ones, suicidal tendencies. Yes. And then I found obviously like kids who were involved in any kind of level of subculture, like Metallica with like Megadeth. I followed a lot of like what what those guys, what t-shirts those guys were wearing. Um, And same like Guns N' Roses. I used to like, I remember Appetite for Destruction. I was like kind of like I don't know if i should like this these guys look like they look yeah. like the guys who beat me up at 7 11 but like yeah. i'm kind of into it you know
0: yeah and
1: uh i yeah i got into i i got into it all kind of by different kinds of ways like punk and hardcore got me in, or uh, skateboarding got me into dri suicidal 10 season, and then i followed that rabbit hole yeah. um kind of being like a, a kid that got like picked on i was a bit you know on the on the fringe and i also got into like Megadeth, Metallica, and kind of by proxy, I sort of got into Slayer through all that stuff. And then stuff like Guns N' Roses got me into like, kind of like, well, I also got into like ACDC, Led Zeppelin, like all those things. Like I really came much more from like the hard, dirtier kind of hard rock and then like fast metal, like really, really fast metal. And uh, then like kind of, I'd say like bigger punk and hardcore bands and then like, you know, DRI and and Suicide, I also got into like Dead Kennedys and all that that long path led me to finding like really like hardcore, hardcore, like what you and I would have called hardcore.
0: Yeah, yeah. What was that moment? So did you, did you find, I think a lot of people who come through to subculture find something that kind of spiritually clicks as an outsider, as being an outsider, as being a weirdo. Was there that moment where you stumbled upon a scene not just listening to the records and listening to music, but you stumbled across a scene where you're like, Oh, I'm not a weirdo. Oh, or, Oh, what's happening here. Oh, there's some, maybe semblance of acceptance here. Was that happening? Where did that happen for you? Or was, was it slower than that epiphany?
1: Well, musically and musically and like, kind of like community wise it's a little bit different. So musically, I see. I see. It would be minor threat. Um, yes. When I listen to minor threat, because like, so I grew up in a Catholic household. Yeah. And I went to Catholic school, but you know, that idea that like you get taught about whatever religion people come in, it's like, Oh, you know, if you do the right things, like good things happen and like, you yeah. be a good person and all that. Yeah. But I grew up, I grew up in a pretty, my parents were married, but I grew up in a pretty, very dysfunctional household for, for yeah. all sorts of reasons. There's like mental health problems in the house and, and all sorts of stuff. So my home life was really challenged. And then I got Um, I've got an exotic sounding name and I grew up in Calgary in like the early eighties. So like target. (laughs) Yeah. Like we were called like, my family were called like terrorists. People would make fun of like our ethnicity. So it was like a really, I got picked on a ton and my home life was, was challenging. So I remember thinking at a very early age, like this whole religion thing is kind of like, not like a, a clear intellectual thought, but more like You've got, you're sold this idea that, you know, if you're a good person, you're kind and all that, the right things are going to happen. But every day I was getting like bullied at school and like pushed around and beat up. And then I'd go home to this like, yeah. kinda, like weird glacial environment. When I heard minor threat, I, so I was really drawn to the ideas of something being good and something being bad because, you know, Catholic, you're kind of grown, grown up that Yeah,
0: that, that dichotomy.
1: Yeah. When I found minor threat, minor threat was so about something it was different than like a Megadeth or a Metallica who are just like writing these, these songs that were awesome, but there wasn't like a a strong moral stance on anything. Yes. Minor threat was the first band that I was aware of. I was like, this is a moral stance. It is a like, Oh yeah. We're like the freaks over here and we're going to invest in that. And not only are we the freaks, but maybe there's something wrong with you. And I was like, this
0: is good. Absolutely. That was, that was super compelling to me. And that there was like a system to it that, that, that these people were had, were on to something systematic about the word, had like kind of a systematic critique in ways. And one that I didn't fully appreciate at the time, but I was like, Oh, there's something going on here that I don't quite grasp, but this is compelling. This is interesting to me. And this kind of yeah. speaks to me for those, for those very reasons, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah.
1: And then from a community perspective, um, yeah, I, my first show, like real deal show was DRI <laughs> when I was 15. years amazing amazing I went to uh I went to the thrash zone tour uh, and uh, promptly got my nose broken my first time in the pit <laughs> so I, my parents dropped me off and I came home just like covered in blood afterwards and was like that's the greatest thing ever happened um, it was a crazy show man like it was like it was it's was kind of an end of an era in Calgary because uh, Calgary had a huge crazy punk scene and then it kind of went away just as me and my friends were getting into it but it was at this place called McEwen Hall ballroom sold out show. It was like only what I could imagine if when people like, you know, when you see like drawings of like a, of what a pit would look like, like an agnostic front pit. Like it was like that, like there was, I'll never forget it. A headbanger jumped off of the monitors. Like this is me doing the headbanger jumping, (laughs) jumped off. And (laughs) it was like the parting of the Red Sea this whole yeah. group oh, of no. people got out of his way and he landed he broke both his legs and oh, no. the show did not stop people just like pulled him out they're like <laughs> <laughs> and i i just remember being a feeling like i i remember that time feeling like oh everyone else in the world's got it wrong we've got yes. it right this yes. is it and that sense of like i found the band that had Flip the script for me. Like, yes. Oh, all those people that are, that are like kind of bullies or, or like my family's kind of screwed up and the, I've got these bullies and I don't quite fit in. Well, that's yes. cause they're all wrong. And here's the band who's got this like moral high ground and I need that. Cause now I'm not going to be the one who has the fingers pointing at me. I'm going to point them back. Yeah. And then I found this like community where I was like, Oh no, this is us. This is our movement. Now, of course, As you get older, you you start seeing the cracks in that, but the power of that is what I'd say is like a a 14 and 15 year old kid that turned me from being um, on a very destructive path to something that like led me to where I am today. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about, what about for you?
0: Very similar, very similar. I think, um, um, and it's why I was also curious about this. Cause it is funny, kind of like these epiphany stories that, that people have of like, kind of, the first kind of encounter with this community, what? Where, 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 yeah, of, of course, then not to sound like I'm not binding these old, neither are you, but like, you know, this, this period in a time where you had to kind of stumble upon it and there were no videos really. And you kind of, you stumble upon it physically. And that, that kind of fir- moment of first contact is super interesting to me. And, um, and mine was like, I remember coming across kids at my school, who skateboarded, and we're all pumped for the first time and say, like, Oh, this is an app. there's a community. And they told me about a show going on. This is the late nineties. Um, and, and there was a new venue, a new DIY venue co- like opening. It was an, it was an earth crisis show in like 1998 wow. or so. And, and yeah. And so, and so, um, I had been to like a couple of not, not real shows just kind of, poked around at some things but that was like the first one where you know you open the door opens you're like what is this world here here's a whole other world that exists of of uh of people wearing different things with different ideas talking about different ideas very vehemently and this is really weird and interesting i want to be a part of it and and um yeah that moment of seeing the earth crisis thing and seeing um uh passionate kids and seeing varsity jackets seeing, seeing all this stuff was like Oh, I, I need to be part of this. Whatever this is, I need to be a part of it because it's like this is another universe. I felt like I had discovered something secret that that I could uh that I could be a part of and that was really alluring and that was really fun. Um and 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 for all the, you know, not and not just a world, like an alternative one. one because I I truly didn't I felt completely incongruent um in what whatever it was that was mainstream culture at that time, whatever it was in you know, in middle, middle school, middle school. Um, so that was like a real epiphany to me emotionally and it, it was lovely. It was great.
1: You know, what's so cool about earth crisis. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like there's this sense of like, like, yo, are they allowed to say that? Like, yeah. like they were saying and doing things in such a like bold, totally bold way. And like, you know, whether or not people like earth crisis. I love Earth Crisis. I still love Earth Crisis. Same, I feel, yeah, they're yeah. like one of the most important bands, not just in punk and hardcore. I just think they're an important band, period. Think of the idea here of like change. And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of yes. dovetail into something about addiction, and addiction and mental health in a, in a second, if that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They see a problem. They look at the system around it and they're like, hmm, the system around this is not going to create any kind of change. Maybe they're going to resist the change, but if change comes, it's going to come by degrees. Why don't we just go start a band and talk about this? Now, I yes. don't think that like a bunch of little kids were thinking that way, but that was the progression and the idea of like direct community action. Yes. How many people are vegan and vegetarian because of Earth crisis?
0: Oh, I, I, no, no doubt. No, that's what was that's what I would not be vegetarian or I would, I would not be any of these saints mm-hmm. if it were not for Earth crisis. Um, and seeing it done in a way that was acceptable, seeing other young people talk about something uh with conviction and seeing people kind of um take it upon themselves to kind of realize a grassroots movement the grassroots social movement which was kind of going on around them um that was something that was really inspiring kind of eye opening to me at that time I never seen anything like that oh, people can like he, People are involved in social change too. And not, I had no um, repertoire, no kind of compass for these things. And seeing, oh, I was like, entirely empowering. And seeing people like not not too much older than me talking about things and making zines and going going to protests, like I, I you know, handing out flyers at shows and t- go, go to this. There's a protest here. This is, this is important. Um, oh, you could do that. It just never occurred to me that, that we had that power within ourselves to do those types of things within it would have been a shitty town. And so um yeah, there's something about that was like super, super empowered. It still is to me. It, it totally is. And it what I found interesting, it's like
1: really this always blows my mind. So you can have people who are um really involved in the idea of like creating change and yes. and making a difference in all of that. And they are super open to the different avenues and the different voices in the different ways. And even yes. if it's something maybe they find personally threatening, they'll become curious about it. Like, Oh, what, what, do, I, what uh-huh. do I know? And then you can have people who are absolutely uh, interested in change, but only change from like the way they want it in their perspective and in a voice that they feel comfortable with. And mm-hmm. you can always, for me, like earth crisis is always kind of a defining band. Like when people are like, Ew but like earth crisis you know they're like blah, blah. it's like uh come on like like when you are talking about animal rights vegetarianism or even creating social change it's like yes. inarguably earth crisis of like minor threat earth crisis um youth of today los crudos uh, los
0: crudos absolutely like,
1: like there are very specific bands that you can yes. identify and being like Oh, those bands like changed everything, like every single thing. And when people hate on them or like, Hey, you could like, you could not like hardcore at all. You could maybe hate hardcore, but if you look at any of those bands and say, Oh, those bands changed everything and made a huge social impact. If you're downing on that, then like you probably want change, but you only want it in your like your own specific way. And that's going to limit your impact." Yes, yes. I'm just a firm believer of like, listen to different voices, bring in different things, like pay attention to things, even if you find them scary, because there's like huge gems there.
0: Absolutely. Completely, completely agree there. Um, um, Especially because, you know, we surely don't always agree with all the bands and the way they were going about politics, particularly in that scene, because there's so much heterogeneity and people dabbling in some pretty radical ideas for the best and the worst. Um, But. Even even with within that range, um, I still appreciate that people were doing something and experimenting and kind of putting the rubber to the road in ways that were like entirely creative and self self-generated. And and uh, and again, to repeat myself, and pretty empowering. And I, what I think is interesting to, to your point, too, is that like. I look at everyone around me, too, given the heterogeneous people who are kind of attracted to hardcore and punk. Here are people who could have easily been – my friends were knuckleheads. Like I, I was, could have easily been a knucklehead uh-huh. and, like, are, are now getting into political ideas they would never, ever, ever have touched. They would never have touched that in a million years. Like would, would the jock of my football team be in animal rights otherwise? No. no like, and that's the kind of powerful thing, too, is that you see that change can enter into people's lives through uh very non-prescriptive ways. Uh, mm-hmm. Through these grassroots movements and through what these bands were doing. I, I still think about that all the time that like, I think it brought political awareness to people in very, who would not have otherwise been politically aware at all. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that to me, I like is something I deeply value.
1: Totally. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And, and actually, yeah. as we're talking more about this, I'd be remiss, of course, if I didn't mention the the legendary Bikini Kill, another, another band that's like changed everything. Totally. And there's so many more. Yeah. I just, I, you know, like, as I was talking, I'm like, oh, I can't forget Bikini Kill. Like, Bikini and, Kill, yeah. And I, like, I, I don't know if if you were aware of them when they were a band, but I remember how people reacted to them and, and yeah. how people felt about it. And it was like,
0: ah, like what oh, is no. this? Like, yeah, yeah. And like, yeah. Th-
1: think how think how their impact. I know people talk about their impact, but it's incalculable what they did, like incalculable the amount of change that they that they help uh, usher in and thinking
0: to help usher in. I, absolutely. I would have never I remember because this is like right around the, the maybe the crest of the radical movement. Mm-hmm. I would have not encountered those ideas were it not for the kind of um, bands in the satellite kind of circling, orbiting bikini. I never saw Bikini Kill. The um, Tigra had just formed... But, but yeah, th- those bands, Bratmobile came through. I remember these bands coming through and being like, what is this? What? Oh, the things I'm saying might suck. Or, oh, I shouldn't drop the F-bomb as a skateboard. Or a sk-. You know, like, like hearing this discourse for the first time, um, I heard it through them and, and kind of people who were getting these ideas through them. And it made me think about the world completely differently in, in much more sensitive ways. Um, and, and, and I credit the kind of riot girl movement for, for doing that and, and encountering those people. And they changed my life totally. All those, the, the the people in my community who were kind of tangential to that to that scene that world
1: yeah well it's funny that you say that like um you know being kind of like a lughead grew up in Calgary you know like <laughs> I grew up in a, I, I mean like I was like out of the fringes but I was also a byproduct of growing up in like you know oh, a very yeah. specific time in the 80s in Calgary and like I remember a lot of those ideas like, th- like I felt very threatened by them like, oh
0: what, yeah what, what do you mean
1: and then just being like oh I, get uh, it now. Yeah. And I wouldn't have been ex- exposed to any of those ideas if it wasn't for those records and the conversations and, and also for every, let's say two great conversations you had about that. Maybe <laughs> there was like 20 really stupid conversations that was sure. around that, but like sure. this is gem, gems of knowledge and young people figuring it out together. Sometimes yes. on- predominantly in awful ways, but sometimes in these really incredible ways where it's like, wow, yes. I'm like different as a result of that record, that conversation, that zine, that show. Um, so here's where I wanted to talk about straight edge uh, and mental health. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah so yeah. prior to what I do now, I worked as an uh, addiction and mental health therapist for about 10 years in, in Vancouver.
0: Wow. Okay, and, okay. and the
1: surrounding area. And uh, I had this boss at the time, his name is Patrick. And he was like, just really... Weird cat, like I could yeah. say a lot of stuff here, but he was just like a zany character, and he'd get really obsessed about things. And uh, I started working there, and he found out about that I played in, in punk bands. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So he starts like you know, like looking me up online and stuff. And he calls me into his office one day, and I thought, oh, here we go, what's going to happen? Because you know, it's like most punks have yeah. kind of got a fear of your boss, right? I'm like, Uh-oh, oh, no. what's going to yeah. happen? He's like. I want to talk to you about straight edge. I was like, Oh no. Oh no. This is not what I was expecting. And he asked me to talk to him about it. And of course he asked, is it like gang related? All the like yeah, things that you think yeah. that happened. Yes. Um, he actually asked me if I was in a gang, by the way. Yeah. Like I was like, Oh God, I'm in like my professional career that I went to school for and worked hard. And I'm being asked if I'm in a gang.
0: <laughs> Cause all, all these, uh, all these special, you know, these specials were being blasted at that time. My middle school, <laughs> We couldn't wear any straight edge stuff because it was a gang. It was was a gang, you know, 60 minutes. John Stossel specials that that kind of like uh, scared the bejesus out of everyone. Absolutely. No. uh, So what happened?
1: Well, first of all, I could just like, let's also just say the media at this point is just like mainstream media is like horrific. Like it is just the worst. My boss then said to me, like he got really interested. I told him the whole like, gave him like kind of an oral history of like straight edge and everything. he's like, so let me get this straight. A bunch of kids have decided to create a subculture together where you don't, you don't drink and you don't do drugs and you want to have a positive mindset. And I was like, right. He's like, and people typically stay straight edge for how long? I'm like, well, you know, like it's supposed to be this like, yeah. lifetime commitment, but let's just say people say, sober between two to 15 years. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. So you're telling me that the, the kind of approval or the hit rate, the, the positive rate would be people would stay sober in these very crucial periods of their life. They would be exactly. sober and surrounded with people who are trying to act or think positively. I was like, yeah, I guess on the surface that would be it. He's like, do you realize that governments all over the world sink millions of dollars into programs to get kids to not do drugs and yeah. to have improved mental health and to, to form strong healthy bond, bonds and to treat yeah. each other with respect and all this they sink millions of dollars and have abysmal failures in it when you and a bunch of people and or not me but but a bunch sure. of kids just decided they're not going to do that yeah. And it cost zero dollars and i was like huh that's, that's a crazy, I yeah. Yeah, never <laughs> thought of that way. He was like, <laughs> yeah, if yeah. that, if that's not the power of community organizing, what is, and it made ah, me kind of like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. like how incredible is it? It's just being like, Oh, you don't drink. I don't drink. Let's put this mark on our hand. Yeah, And then yeah. you've got suddenly like hundreds of thousands, well, maybe tens of thousands of people all over the sure. world who are making what like, arguably or inarguably somewhat of a healthy choice yes. for whatever period of time. And it, it achieves something that actual experts can't get kids to stop absolutely. smoking
0: weed, but their peers can absolutely absolutely What, what was and it reminds exactly what you're saying reminds me of wasn't there like a failed ad campaign by um oh i'm I'm butchering it now, but there was like a commercial um it's council for drug-free America or maybe it was it was it might have been a u.s government agency that did it they sponsored kind of a straight edge you're, you're smiling so you might know what i'm talking about i totally um, know
1: what you're talking about yeah
0: where it was like uh, a bunch of kids talking about youth crew music and um they might have been were they even repeating minor threat lyrics yeah i don't I'm know like, whatever happened so
1: there were a few different versions of it one <laughs> had the minor threat lyrics and it was like Porcell, ken olden yes. was in it yes yes and there was another one where this dude Gordo was like going to like a record store and like Gordo, buying records.
0: Gordo, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's the one I remember. The, the mm-hmm. Latin, the latter. Um, that's I, I do that kind of reminds me of like, yeah. Why, why was, I mean, thank God it wasn't hard, like harvested in, in nefarious ways by, by, um, but, but that, that's, that's super interesting that uh yeah, what you're saying reminds me of that. How did, how did, so wait, were you, were you working at, the, was this a center? Was this an inpatient unit? What, what was, what was this you were working was at? Out, a, outpatient. Outpatient. Outpatient
1: canceling, yeah. It,
0: was it specifically for drugs and rehabilitation?
1: It was for how drugs did, and mental health.
0: How did, how did, how did, how did, how did being straight edge interact with that situation? How did it inform or inform being straight edge at that point? Because you're seeing it from a whole other perspective.
1: So you know when you get like that, that feeling I told you when suddenly I could start pointing back at the world and being like, You're wrong, like you're screwed up. I remember when I, I got my first job out of that. And like I'd grow, like I said, I grew up in Calgary like truly like middle class, like maybe lower middle class, but truly sure. middle class. And I mean, I suffered and struggled and all the things I talked to you about, but I never experienced like poverty. I never experienced like violence in my home. I never experienced like I didn't experience a lot of the things that that would lead people down a a challenging path. Um, Becoming a therapist and addiction therapist really was a very sharp, hard lesson in how. Limited the idea of straight edge and how limited the idea of punk can be. Yes. Um, If you stand stick in that black and white of good and bad, yeah, and and it can be super powerful if you're willing to be flexible and apply it to different things. And if if what it taught me was like, because I was like very much like strange guy, the guy It's like, you know, whatever like whatever ridiculous things you want to yeah, yeah. apply to it. Like my you know, my email address was like XRMX at Hotmail. You know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Um, and you just hit a point where you're like, oh, I don't want this to be the front line of like how I interact with people at all because no, it's stupid. No. And I don't want to turn people off because like A, all sorts of people interact with all sorts of substances and all sorts of different Absolutely. diets. And that doesn't make them good or bad people and I'm limiting my life. I don't want to like I don't want to look at my life through like a keyhole. Like I don't want to yes. look at the world through a keyhole. So that it was a big sharp reminder of like how valuable and credible other people are despite what they decide to to or not put into their bodies or eat or whatever. Yes. I and mean, the other thing is like you can't really hate, you can't really help people if your starting point is judgment. And no. um it was a hard lesson in in not being a shithead.
0: Yeah. I can imagine that was well sobering that, that that would have been immediately uh yeah I, I, that would make me immediately confront a lot of the ways i went about being straight edge absolutely uh, yeah. at least at, at at my age when i was when i was younger um and i remember i i never would see it through the lens of a counselor a mental health professional someone in your in your position but i remember when um because this is Florida in late 90s through 2000s when the meth epidemic was hitting, and, and the, the opioid epidemic was, was kind of starting. And so starting to see that that thing, that kind of machine, which has killed so many people, kind of start percolating, start ramping up. And the pill mills in, in Florida start ramping up. Seeing that, like, start was really sobering like oh something, and it was a weird interaction that like it made me more convicted in my own internal beliefs about this thing what we call straight edge but it completely changed the way i politically experience it and the way i articulate it in my daily life because suddenly like there's a lot of people around me dying or a lot of people who are addicts and it is a kind of a shitty town which, which had a lot of these problems it's like oh, this isn't going to cut it being a cartoon um, because these are real people and, and, you know, and, and we're having to engage in a whole different politics now. Um, yeah, and, and, and now it's a full-blown epidemic in the U.S. So um, I can only imagine like a leading indicator, you, you kind of confronting that from the vantage point of um, you know, delivering mental health services to people. How long did you stay in that role? How long did you stay there?
1: uh 10 years in in various in various roles uh so yeah. first was like youth addiction uh, mental health and then i did um housing for um under house populations and oh, wow. then, and then back to adult addiction or then into adult addiction and 10 years 10 years was a good run i really like great job great work um i guess what pushed me out of it not pushed me out it's of it that
0: the, was my question that was yeah
1: what it got me out of it was, and what got me interested in what I do now is like leadership. Um, you know, a lot of those organizations, they just can't afford to train leaders and, and they're not typically, except for maybe very, very senior levels, like hiring leaders, so to say, like they're hiring who's the last person standing. You know, it's like oh, yeah. everyone's quit. You're the boss, you know, or like yeah, yeah, the yeah. standards for leadership. At least when I worked in the in the not for profit sector, were extremely low. And you just found these organizations that like we're doing good work. Like the frontline workers are doing great. The therapists were doing great. The office staff was doing great. Everyone's just doing what they can. Yes, um, they're doing uh, great. Is maybe not the, the best term. They're doing the best that they can based on what, how they understand their own performance, what they understand about collaboration, working together. Um, But I found my experience in not-for-profits, the cultures from, I worked in uh, three different places and the culture from place to place was toxic. It was terrible and the leadership was awful. And it wasn't because the people were bad at all. Like they're great. It's that, um, you know, there's so much, there's so little money. Uh, to yes. go around to, for training and all these things. And, and the focus is often about like helping people and getting, getting in there and direct action and doing that. Yes. You, these things are kind of like, um, talent mills. You've got all these young people who are coming in with the best of intentions and they just get pulverized and they often get yes. stuck in jobs. And then you see these really bitter professionals who not always, and I, I don't want to speak in generalities, of course. but you see a lot of professionals just get burnt out, having mental health crises of their own, sinking into addiction themselves, really unhappy with yeah. their jobs, and all of it is based on like the poor leadership. I just hit a point where I, I, I had had enough of working in toxic cultures and working with, you know, these just terrible bosses. So I decided I'm going to try something new, and uh, I was walking down the street with my dog one day. I have like a, a wiener dog, and his name is Blue. And, um, he's a very distinct looking dog. Cause he's actually kind of like wine, Ryan, <laughs> colored. so he's called blue and I'm walking down the street and I ran into this dude, uh, who started talking to me about my dog. He's like, Oh, your dog's amazing. We start chatting. He's like, Oh, what do you do for a living? I'm like, oh, I'm a therapist. He's like, well, I run an executive coaching company. We're looking for a therapist to come in and, and work for us. Would you be interested in talking about it? And it was so serendipitous that I was like, okay. Hey, and hey. Uh, that's, that's what brought me down my path.
0: What was your view? I think as, as people coming from soap culture, maybe because you were in the mental health space, you might have had a different view of coaching, of leadership, of these, these words that I myself had for whatever reason, a knee-jerk kind of negative impression of or dismissive impression of it. Maybe you didn't. Did what did you, what was your perception of like the world of coaching, the world of leadership, these things that you're so into now? at that moment when you, when you met this guy.
1: I thought it was corny. Yeah. 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 But I'd only been exposed to corny things. Yes. Yes. And the guy that I worked for was ultra corny and the company (laughs) that he has is like unbelievably corny, like really, really corny, but it was really cool because like I went in, I took this leap and instantly was like, I went from like this very toxic culture that I was working in into a complete madhouse. It was like, it was like, but it was like a different kind of madhouse. Like the first week that I worked at my other job, someone hit me in the head with a, with a laptop case, like a soft laptop case. I was working on my computer and (laughs) whacked me on the head with it, (laughs) which would never happen to me. So it was like having like a little brother. Suddenly like, like someone sprayed perfume in my face. Someone whacked me on the head with all the first week I was working there. People were like openly talking about like really like graphically talking about sex, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, oh, and I wow, just come from wow. the social services, and I was like, "What is this madhouse I'm Yeah, yeah. I ran into my boss on commercial. It was like a street in Vancouver, and he started like it w- I was with my friends. It was like a weekend, and he started like grilling me about work stuff in front of my friends in like the first two weeks that I was working <laughs> there, and I was like. <laughs> this is the worst thing. I've made a terrible life decision, but like I'd made the decision. So I just buckled down. I learned the industry. And as I was learning the industry, I was, I was juxtaposing. I was like, here's the stuff that this company is getting me to do. And it's so corny
0: and there's some Uh gems
1: in it, but it's really corny. But here's all of this other really cool stuff that's out there. Like, like Brene Brown, like, uh, like uh, the people that I'm like really like inspired by. And it's like, Oh, there's actually super cool stuff here. And and in fact, my therapeutic background, if I could get more in that area. And so like, it was almost like the first two months that I was working at this company. I was like, I need to yes. start my own company. And I just went in with like a learner's mind. I learned as much as I could. And also like, I, I was into staying there if we could kind of steer the company in a cooler direction. And it kind of, we kind of started getting there. But the 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 corny dude was just too corny. Like he yeah, just he yeah, just yeah. he just wanted it to go. He wanted he wanted to have like a, a cornfield, and I just I couldn't do it, man. I wow. was like, dude, I got to go this way. Uh,
0: I can't. And, do uh,
1: it. We start. I started my own company and based on like therapeutic practices and a coaching perspective, and now it's like I I in a weird way this detour into really corny stuff helped me define what what is it that I don't like. Yes, I'm not going to do that, so that I can focus on the things I do like.
0: Yes, yes. Was it? This makes complete sense. I'm, 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 um, I'm nodding because it, it's somewhat similar. No, 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 no it's something that, that seems completely reasonable, and something that also resonates with me a bit. Um, um, how scared? How? I mean, because me, I'm, I'm, ter- I'm a, ter- I'm a scared person. I'm a terrified person. How terrifying? What? When did you know you were going to make that leap? And was it terrifying? For for me, those types of leaps are. We're always just completely uh, nerve wracking to realize that, oh, like this new job, this new, this cornball I'm working with, this isn't going to cut it. I have to go like go out on my own. Was that a terrifying experience for you? Totally terrifying. Or no. I, okay. You no, know, okay. it was
1: super terrifying. And, and it's scary now. Like, I, I mean, we're five years in and we're, we've got like a proven track record. Uh, I talked about this recently. Like, um, so I've always taken a lot of leaps in my life. You know, uh-huh. like quitting my job to go on tour and like like all the exactly. stuff that people do, right? And sure. and I actually say one hundred and ten percent playing in the punk scene is is what set me up for this. Like, it's a risk. It's not a risk starting a band, but it's a risk playing a show. It's a it's a risk because you're like putting yourself out there. Like, do we suck or not? It's a risk getting up on oh. stage.
0: Oh, oh, everyone will have an opinion. People will tell you things, and people will tell. You. Like in the act of producing something, you realize even within this tiny, tiny, yeah, it could be something infinitesimal that you're putting out. Like, like, um, I was always petrified of reactions to things and seeing that reaction first to like making a zine and it is like, it's like, it hits you in the face. I don't think there's many thing people, we don't produce things as people often and we do, we do for work and stuff, but we aren't like the residual claimants on what we do. And in punk, where it's like you're kind of given. The, the means of production. You're, you're producing things. You're producing things for people. You immediately are confronted with like, like the reality of what it means to produce something, which is like people are going to respond to it, and often in a very vocal way, and in a place where like people are very opinionated. That's the terrifying thing. That's a terrifying place to be. And that's something I learned to deal with. I think really quickly and, and really early on that uh, um, I don't think I would have otherwise been have encountered at all. Um,
1: the ability. Well, the ability to manage criticism is oh. I believe the most, one of the most valuable life tools that you can have. And like, yeah. I don't just mean criticism, but I, I also mean critique when people are picking up, yes. uh, picking apart your efforts. I have a, a, a saying and I, and I live by it. Believe your own shit and be fully willing to be told you're full of shit at yeah. any given time. And what I mean by that is like, yeah, you should totally believe in what you do. If you're doing it, you should believe that you have something of immense value to add, yes. to give, to provide, to inspire. You should believe in your own shit, like 100%. And if someone's like, oh, you believe in your shit, you should be like, well, yeah, like what, who else's shit? Am I supposed to believe in yours? Like, you know, like believe in your shit and you have to be willing to have someone be like, oh, that sucks. Because your next question should be like, okay, tell me, like, what are the parts that suck? Yes even in the most blasé, ridiculous criticism could lie a grain, yeah, a nugget. And it doesn't mean that like, you know, you put, let's say you like, you know, put out a song and then some like person yells from a car, like, you suck, you know, it's not like you want to chase them down and be like, tell me what sucks. But what I'd say is if someone, if someone is going to critique you rather, if someone's criticizing you, I invite critique. Like, okay, well, tell me about it. Like, I want the critique. Move away from criticism. Don't say I suck. Tell me why I suck. Get to the details. But mm-hmm. you can't do that with every single person. But you should be willing to, if someone has any kind of significant track record of success in any, like any anything that's related to what you're doing, you should invite the critique. You know, if like someone's like, Yeah, what you your band is corny or your company is corny, and they actually have like a track record of a business person or somebody who's mm-hmm. made music or someone who's made zines, it'd be like, Great. Okay, tell me what's corny specifically. Like, let's talk about it. Like, tell me what sucks. If you can get comfortable with, if someone's criticizing you yes. to invite critique or if someone's critiquing you to dig in with it, you've got a skill uh, that will take you
0: throughout your entire life. Yes, yes, yes. And I think through everything, what you're saying does does resonate a lot. Um, I think because... I would see bands and I would see people's products emerge so rudimentary and often so bad. And you would see very quickly a trajectory of growth in people that was very um, salient and very palpable. And you could see someone, you know, playing, playing a little house show in a terrible band, putting out terrible seven inches, then being something of, of importance and, producing things that were were good and you could see that evolution before your eyes at least i i would and that would be really inspiring and it made me um it made me be less fearful of sucking at first because you just have to suck at something when you when you first do it you're going to and having the space to suck and kind of take to embody sucking and to kind of get told critiques and to like learn and having that space to do that was, I think really, and that was the nice thing about DIY is I think it it gave us the space. It gave one the space to kind of adjust and grow and be imperfect, which I think is necessary. And it got me over, I would have been completely petrified to do anything that wasn't absolutely airtight, perfect, et cetera, et cetera. It made me get over my own perfectionism and to uh, seek out the types of critiques would you, would you, would you now like kind of celebrating, which are now integral to in everything I do now. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Does well, that make sense?
1: That, it makes perfect sense, man. And so like to, to bring it back to starting the business, like, yeah, I was terrified and, and I remember sitting with two of my colleagues, uh, my former colleagues one day and we were all just like, we just had enough, we just had enough of this company. And the three of us were like, well, okay, we can sit around and talk shit or we could do something, we should do something. And we like had this like really like big conversation about it, like we're going to do something. And sure enough, you know, when the, when like the rubber hit the road, I I don't want to say this is because of punk or not, but it takes a certain kind of person to leave the nest and take a certain kind of person when you're in like, you seek safety or you go hard. And I went out on my own, did this thing, um, one of them is no longer at that company. They went on, they went on to do something else, but was there for years and was not stoked for years, like stayed like, stoked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the other one stayed and kind of like rose to quite a significant level in the company. And, and I, I believe is relatively like stoked is like pretty happy that they stayed. But the whole thing is like, I think it's, it, t- anyone can talk shit. And like, I don't like to just, I mean, I like to talk shit, but like, I don't like to, I yeah, don't like to yeah. sit in my own shit. I don't want to sit there and be like, man, this sucks. It's like, well then go do something else. And yes, it's a, re- it's really important for me. And like kind of one of the different things that I think about is like, you know, you could be a bystander and just basically be like, that sucks, but I'm unwilling to do something about it. Yes. yes. Or you could be someone who is there to collaborate and you're like, that sucks. And I'm willing to work with others. Um, but not take the lead. Like I don't want to take the lead, but I'll I'll be willing to work with others and kind of create that change. If someone else uh, puts in the, uh, puts in the effort, or you could be a leader. You can be like, that sucks. And I'm going to put myself out front and I'm going to bring together all the powers and we're all going to work together. And none of those things are bad. You know, like, I don't want to say if someone's a bystander, they're a bad person, but it's like, I don't know. Like if you choose to say something sucks and you don't want to do anything with it, your complaining should probably be curtailed a little bit versus someone who's like, you know what? I think that sucks and I am willing to work on it, but I just, I'm not going to be the person who puts myself up front. Then I think you can complain a little bit more because you're like willing to make that change. But if you're a leader and you say something sucks, like it's the act of taking on that change for me, which is that like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to push change. You're going to get shit. People are going to criticize you. People are going to hate on you. But if you're willing to do it and take that spot, It is a huge, it's a huge thing. And I also think you got a little bit more room to complain there because you're actually like in the fray, like making a difference.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Um, it, It all makes complete sense. How, for you, were there archetypes or were there people, were there stories that feel like hardcore and punk, there's a lot of mythology and there's a lot of, you know, book your own, this band could be your life. Book your own fucking tour, you know, these, all these books, these templates that kind of show you the template of how to do something on your own. And for me, those maybe, maybe kind of subconsciously, those always kind of demonstrated some, um, template for leadership or some template for doing something. And I think even when I create a new lab, we're creating a new lab right now, a new research lab. Um, the way we're going about it. I, I know I caught myself the other day, I'm, I'm, it sounds maybe, you know, I'm not lying, but it's like I thought about um, reading about Discord records and how they were figuring out how to put together records and ungluing ungluing the record sleeves and to figure out how how do you put these things together and, and, and um, backward engineering something that seems kind of insurmountable and undoable and beyond you. And to me, that kind of stuck in my head. And that's still, I think, the way I go about things is, like, in this lab, we're trying to, what is it, what does, what this other guy do? Oh, it's not that hard. Oh, let's kind of reverse, it's reversible. It's reverse engineer. Let's reverse engineer. There's a way to do this. And to me, those stories always stuck out as, like, really empowering because it showed me, like, oh, that's a template that can be applied to multiple things. Um, was that the same for you? I, 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 maybe I'm, maybe I'm reaching, but, like, those things really haunt me still in a good way. All,
1: all the way, man. Like, all the way. And this is, like, it's so interesting because like when we ask people to be on the podcast, um, very often we hear people say, well, it's like, oh, I don't really think of myself as a leader. It's like
0: a oh, leader yeah. to me
1: is not necessarily about leading people. It's about like leading ideas, leading change. And and it can, that it can involve leading people, but it's about like kind of pushing the envelope and creating change and being willing to do that. Like to stand out. I think of that, that discord stuff is just, and I also I'll tie back to earth crisis and like bikini Kill and you today and crudos and all of that. It's like, Let's say someone gets into punk and hardcore and they directly learn something from, let's say, Discord. Wow. They reverse engineered their their records um, and like the covers and all of that. That person has been changed from that because they understand something about like, oh, well, there's this huge system, the music industry. These people just sat down and literally pulled apart covers. They figured it out and they did it. Yes. It changes their idea of how to interact with systems. Now, so you've got this one person and let's say that person is in a punk and hardcore for like three years and then it's gone or two years or three months or whatever. But they've learned that about discord. That person carries the gen, the, the seed of that idea to every single other person that they meet. And they might be like, Oh yeah, we'll think like, you know, like independent record labels. This is how they do it. Or they might not even phrase it that way, but they might be like, well, why don't we just reverse engineer this? The yeah. idea that like direct action and just these like little like. You know, like some CEO somewhere might be like, well, what does Minor Threat have to do with me? I'm like, it's not about Minor Threat, the band. It's about how they approached breaking down problems and creating something based on their own ideas. Yes. And that's how we can create real change in the world. And it's so crazy how like these little communities and these little things of direct action that especially at the time just seemed like little kids getting one over on the system actually like changed the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and I, I, absolutely. And I see, you know maybe it's uh what what you say it makes a lot of sense cuz I you know it's like it's like um I don't want to say red pill or you know it's like you, you start looking at the world differently through this different lens and I start seeing commonalities in other uh, uh dare I say subcultures, other other communities that ha- have these same spirits and I see the success of these things in those worlds too. So I think I interact a lot with the hacker community, the machine learning AI community. I see the kind of DIY kind of code sharing. No, this isn't that, this isn't that hard. It looks complicated. It's not that hard. Here's how you do it. Um, I see that same spirit there and it's success there. And that makes me, that always makes me one well, excited. And it always makes me realize, Oh, this thing isn't just specific to subculture, or to punk. These, these are ideas that, like you said, are kind of, uh, m- m- uh, more profound than that. And it had, have res, res, have meaning elsewhere. Um, but it also kind of like, I think allowed me to interact in much different communities in much the same way I interacted with punk. Oh, it's the same thing. And, and yeah. that, that's something that's a gift that keeps on giving. Um,
1: it, it is, man. And I, I think about, and I, I can still just clearly remember the time I saw a minor threat record the very first time yeah. it was like getting, um, so, you know, I'm a young kid. I'm a teenager in Calgary. Like, been like called names all my life, like beat up, like pushed aside. Like, you know, I'm a skateboarder, but in, in Calgary you can only skateboard a certain amount of the time because it's like cold and cold all <laughs> the whole time. There's gravel yeah, on the yeah. streets. So you're like, you just entrenched in this identity as a skateboarder. But, but also like, you know, my home life is really, was really challenging. And I just remember feeling like the world is bad. Like I'm in a bad world. And I remember looking at that minor threat record and it was as if someone threw me a lifeline. And that lifeline, if I just held on to it and I read and I listened and I learned and I applied myself, it would pull me into the future. And it, it took me from being this teenager who felt like the world around me is full of superpowers that I've got nothing I can do against and I'm going to be bullied and beat up and pushed aside for the rest of my life to feeling, oh no, like i got, I've got power and I'm going to use this power. And yeah. then as I got older and I got, I learned life lessons, It still helped guide me. And, and that's why so much of what we do in our, in, in cadence in my business, it's so governed by punk and why very often, uh, many of the guests we have on the podcast are from the punk scene, but they're doing yeah. like real, real deal, like leadership and business stuff.
0: Absolutely. Where, what you're saying also reminds where do you think, do you think, because And I, I imagine you were too, you were in bands, you were, you're, you're, you're like deeply ensconced in this world Were there. Things that you felt deficient in because of punk. I think there were some things too mm-hmm. for me that I had to unlearn maybe some of the rough edges of punk or I wasn't cognizant of or as attuned to because of punk. Were there any liabilities, you think, coming into mm-hmm. your space, coming into the world that, that punk didn't endow you with?
1: Yes, but you first. What about for you? <sighs> for me, it
0: was goal setting. I, like there were all these things which I was super dismissive of, maybe like leadership, too. I didn't realize we were embodying leadership with what we were doing often that like in in kind of <laughs> recruiting people into hard recruiting people into our cult yes. that is that is hardcore <laughs> punk um, that like the, that, that was like leadership a uh, implicitly that's leadership Is leadership aspect to what we're doing, but then there was these finalities that I completely ignored, for instance, um I didn't realize like things like goal setting, the importance of goals and kind of these things, which I was very dismissive of it, just like some of the bigger ideas within leadership. I, I wasn't attuned to it. That took me a while to be like, Oh, this thing just isn't the type of fodder that fills books, hardcover books at airports. This is like real stuff. And it actually is really important and, and really important people and thoughtful people actually find this stuff being goal setting. Um, you know, for all we, we talk about discipline. Um, and, 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 and you know, I think there is like this kind of machismo discipline thing within hardcore. Um, I realized I needed much more of that too. I, I knew it aesthetically. No, these thing's matter. haha how we're disciplined. Uh, we don't do drugs or we, we don't eat meat. Um, but, uh, the discipline to kind of um, stay motivated to stay to, to apply PMA day in and day out through a slog of something that sucks, and not to say, "Hey, this sucks." That was something that was very new to me that I had to like learn. Did, do those two things? Those are two things oh, that stand man. out. Yeah, yeah, totally.
1: I So I'll, I'll add to that. Um, My first was my opinion on everything does not matter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So you you know, I'm like punk and hardcore, it's just like. I think a uniform choice, like screaming for change. It's like, you know, like what I think about everything is super important and you need to know about it. It's like, listen, what I think about everything is important to me and maybe a few other people, but not to the world in general. And also my knowledge and expertise and even like my uninformed opinion on things is not necessary. (laughs) Like I should speak to things that I have an ability to really add value to a conversation and more often than not, I should be listening way more than I'm speaking. Yeah. So that was like something I had to really learn. Um, yeah. and there's a great quote from Billy Rubin who sang in Half Off that I talk a lot about, about how he had to learn. Like, you know, it was really tough going to the in the corporate world or into not corporate world, but into his career. Is he corporate? I, he's not. I don't think he's corporate. He, he's a photographer. I don't know what he does for a living. Oh. Maybe he does that for a living. He has this great quote in a, in a vice uh, interview, and I'm going to butcher it. So I'll just say in. in just basically, he said, like, I had to very quickly unlearn that everything that I thought about everything did not matter. It took up space, it derailed yeah. conversation, and I had to work to change that. Um, I had to work to change that. I would pontificate, like, you know, yes. like give you my opinion on everything. And you could just see people just be like, at first, they're captivated because I'm confident, I can speak well. They're like, wow. But after like a few months, they're like, man, we should just go shut up. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> I don't care what yeah. you think. So <laughs> that was the content the- to this.
1: Oh, absolutely! Is yeah. there content? Are you adding value right now? Yes. That yes. was the first. Um, the second is that like punk and hardcore is like it. It's so so cool, but it's extremely rules based and it's very yeah. conformist. And like it's unbelievable. It's ex it, for anyone listening who's like uninitiated, punk and hardcore is unbelievably conformist. Like it, it's different than the rest of the world, but within group, it's extremely conformist. And yes something that I learned that I had to unlearn is, and it sounds like a, a little bit of uh, what you had to learn. It's like a deep dismissiveness of anyone that didn't fit with an extremely tight parameter of what I thought was yes. good or bad. And punk is like, I don't want to say this is everyone's experience, but like it's unbelievably conformist. And I, I I've, I've really lost my taste for, for a lot of the yeah. community aspect of it because of that, because it's so conformist. So that, uh, and what I found for me was that it limited my uh, connections to other people, my friendship yes. with other people, yes. like my interactions, the, the value I'd place on people's thinking. And that's not punk's fault. It's my fault for kind of like falling for that. But I was really conditioned that way. Oh, so it's alluring. A-
0: yeah. It's alluring. Yeah.
1: And the third thing is um, kind of false icons. Um, and I can't say this is a punk thing, but, you know, I, I, oh, yeah. again, I grew up Catholic. So, like, I always wanted to have, like, really clear affiliations of good and bad hero villain and coming up in punk, you know, you're really set up to think like people are good people. Like I'm straight edge and vegan. Well, you're a good person or yes. I'm about this. Well, you're a good person. Oh, you're not about this. You're, you're a bad person. And, um, very much like I grew up with like really idolizing and looking up to people and like really wanting to, to, um, be accepted, uh, by people that I kind of view as, as like, yeah, successful. It's like, oh no, like you put out like a cool record when you were 20. And that's like about the extent of, it doesn't mean yeah. that's bad, but like, certainly I shouldn't be seeking your approval. And you're certainly not like of any kind of like moral authority in my life. I'm a, you know, like that's, that's for each human being. And it really primed me up to create idols. And I, yes. I really had to step out of that and be like, well, what's someone bringing to the table now? Not the record they partially wrote when they were like 23 years old.
0: Yes. Yes. It made me highly attuned to, um, Oh, who's that producer who produced, uh, uh, who, who, who's in big black? Um, Steve Albini, Steve Albini. It's an interview where he talks about the micro celebrity phenomena of punk and how kind of pernicious that is. And I think that, um, that's something that hit me hard that hit hard with me, um, and, and something I also see kind of replicated in my own, um, very tiny world here, like in the academic world. So we believe our own narratives and our own coolness for things, for producing things that have meaning. And it might be really amazing for very specific audiences, for very specific people. And we start to believe in our own, we we drink our own Kool-Aid. Uh, that's not a PC thing to say, but we, we, we believe our own hype. And I would see the degree to which people would buy into that and in really flawed ways and that was something that really scared me and that was something that like i i I still kind of often reflect on because i see it in in all other spaces now it's kind of like oh we start we start thinking we're really hot shit we're really cool things when when what we know actually what we're doing is like extremely limited sometimes we should feel great for it but it doesn't mean we're better people it doesn't mean and that's something that really holds over another when you said the, the parameters of of um, how kind of defining and limited the kind of, and how kind of tight we police the boundaries of what punk and hardcore is. That's something too, that, that really I needed to grow out of. And that's something I really needed to, I hope is better now too. I get the sense. And that's something that I felt was really damaging too. And the way as like people trying to keep together these, I, I think there's reasons why we have such tight parameters and incoherent parameters and why we police them so strangely and so kind of um viciously sometimes. But that's my one regret, too, looking back. is like, I think we would have been much more impactful if we weren't so obsessed with these super temporal fleeting um parameters that we were always trying to enforce. Why? I don't know why. Like, and, and things that were so arbitrary. I think we would have been way more effective as a community had we not do that. And I see even wrong now but i see i hope the younger kids are a little bit better I, i'm hoping they are i don't know
1: i don't know i i mean i think so you know like people kind of getting shit for not being like straight edge like yeah, so yeah. That? like i think about something like that i can't speak to anyone else i know when i was young in my mind yes. it was it, or in my mind it was always about like kind of like you know busting someone's balls like oh like you know you got to make yeah, fun of yeah, someone yeah Or it would be like, oh, are you okay? Like, I just want to check in. You're okay. And it's like, both are just like, so like, yeah, that's like so fucked that you would act that way towards someone just because they decide to like hot drink or smoke weed or whatever. Yeah. And what I really realized is it's about my, it was about my insecurity, about my own uncertainty of who I was and that I wanted conformity. I want us all to be straight edge. I want us all to be about the same thing. And, and if you break that chain, well, what does that say about me? and it's a yeah. weird way of like making the whole world about you and yeah. when I started realizing that I, I remember I, I I was joking around with a friend well I thought I was joking around with a friend of mine and he was really upset and he was like it affected it affected our friendship for years afterwards and you know finally years later he was like yeah, it really hurt my feelings when I stopped being straight that you like made fun of me and you really made fun of me about it and I was like oh I thought I was just busting your balls and he was like yeah but didn't who cares? And I felt so embarrassed. And like, we were adults, right? And I was at this point, I was like, I'm so sorry. Like I, and the entitlement that I felt at that time, but so much of it was like group dynamics, like who's on top of the group. Like, you know, you're, you're still figuring yourself out. You're figuring out your identity. So I think a lot of that, so not just straight edge, but like kind of punk and policing things. And like, what's cool, and not cool so much of it is about like social real estate. Like what kind of social real estate do you take up in a group? Like, what do you like? What do you not like? What's your ability to govern what other people should or should not like? A lot of that is about your sense of self and how comfortable you are with yourself and, and how you interact with the world. And as I've gotten older, I'd like to feel that I'm, I'm, older is not the right way way that I want to phrase it. Cause I know a lot sure. of young people who aren't, who don't act shit like shitheads. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I would say for myself, the more that I, I grew in life and became more centered in myself, the less, the less I was like that. And also yes. like the more embarrassed I would have I've gotten about like, Oh, I can't believe I said or did that, you know?
0: Yes. 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 I was but, really, my, my authenticity, I think was really kind of fragile sometimes. And I was really, and, and there was like a, a kind of, um cannibalistic urge to show who is more authentic than but i think it was permeating subculture that time i think mm-hmm. they read the 90s stuff is like this obsession with authentic you watch clerks it is like yes. who's a poser who's not blah 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 yeah. um which i feel like hopefully might be a bit transcended now
1: i think it it's working its way out in different ways like i mean yeah. i think a lot of like political movements like super incredible important political movements i think fall a little bit of prey who's like oh yeah who's more like that than versus like who like that kind of like looking for cracks in everybody. And, and it's, it's interesting because it's like, these are such incredible, like such important movements and ideas and all that. But you can see their momentum momentum gets stymied by that cannibalistic urge of like self-governing. I don't think it's like a punk thing. I think it's very much a people passionate about something and pushing for something. It, it becomes at some point much like you can push it to a certain degree where there's like yes. rapid or at least seeming like rapid change, but then the rest of that change or ongoing change, it's like really requires diligent, hard effort. And it becomes a little easier just to like, kind of like poke at the person to the left and the right of you. than like look at yourself or to keep pushing forward. Yes. I can't fault anyone for, for doing that. I mean, I've certainly, I certainly have done that in my life, like my, many, many, many times, but I think it's a bit of a human failing of like, creating change, especially change that is, is so anti whatever the dominant cultural view is. Once you hit a point where it's like the, the you've had a momentum, but the going gets rough, it might it might be a little bit more appealing just to start attacking people who are actually like working with you.
0: Yes, yes, yes. I think I saw the same because I went from hardcore. I'm still involved. I still go to shows, but I'm not like I don't know like who the cool band is anymore. I don't know who the cool people are. I don't, I, I'm kind of like... Um, trust uh, i'm a distant uh, onlooker now you know and I, and I got more into activism um after this i could see these same dynamics at play and it made me a little more sensitive to these things um seeing it play out in our affinity groups or play, seeing it play out in our kind of like a, uh, um you know uh, our little cell that we have our, our book our reading our goddamn reading group you know these little things we have and it's like this kind of like um and it made me much more sensitive to um letting people have the space to kind of well not fall within the parameters of what we think is an ideal activist blah, blah, blah. but also like people are and I was bad at this too in, in punk when I was deeply involved in punk I was really people are still kind of figuring things out and not always going to follow the script perfectly probably ways that are in punk they're probably great they're not following the script perfectly but um Within social movements, I see a tendency that I think is really harmful to kind of be very punitive to people who kind of step outside boundaries or who might not know the nuances like kids who might not know the nuances of, of, um, of certain etiquette and stuff like that and to really push them away quickly. And I think that stuff was super damaging. I saw that. I, I think I would not have been attuned as attuned to that had I not come from seeing it, see it and participated it um, myself in the hardcore scene. I see it playing out too in these in social movements, you see the same dynamics at play and you read historically about, you read about all these leftist radical movements in the U S that splintered into a million pieces for these reasons. Absolutely.
1: Well, yeah. it's funny you say that, uh, the first time I ever saw earth crisis walking up to the show, there were some kids out front smoking, like outside yes. the show smoking. And there was a person out there with huge nineties X's on their hands Screaming at them, like, yeah. how dare you be out here smoking? We're yeah. at an Earth Crisis show. We're about Straight Edge. Now, of course, the band had nothing to do with it. And I don't know how they would have felt, probably mortified because they were kids coming to see the show. And I remember I wasn't Straight Edge at the time. And I was with two of my friends who both smoked. And we were all like, oh, what do we do? Am I yeah, friends? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not kidding they went and hid in the woods to smoke <laughs> between the like, we don't, yeah, we, don't, yeah. we, don't want, we don't want to get yelled at by that straight edge yeah. person. So yeah, like, yeah, it, it's, it, 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 you get just that taste of kind of empowerment because you're part of something important and it is important. These ideas yeah. are important, but then it's like, it's so easy and tempting just to turn that, that uh-huh. power and that passion on uh-huh. someone to the left or right and uh-huh. blow up their world. And, uh, I, I mean, again, not just part of punk and hardware. We see that everywhere. Absolutely, and we also see it uh, in in you know in in our jobs where people get like picked on, blown up, like you know people like get attacked. Um, yeah. You know, we do a lot of uh, we do a lot of what we call three hundred and sixty assessments. And uh, I've ever had something like that done before. Is that 360?
0: like is that like a review? Is that like a review of oneself? Like where where people comment? Is that where workplace all gives an uh, assessment of you? Yeah. I yeah. Didn't. You
1: pick between like eight to 12 people and oh boy. Um, they get an, each person is interviewed individually about you and then you get that feedback and we put it through like a process and like lots of companies do it. We do it in a, in a way that's kind of governed. Do you um, facilitate
0: it? Do you do facilitate within companies? Or- yeah. Oh wow. Yeah.
1: Well, we never do. Um, I don't believe in doing uh, uh, ones that are like, just like a, a multiple choice clicking online. Like we never do it. We never do survey what we call survey style. Uh, we don't email things cause I feel like for mid-level managers, those are kind of effective cause you're just getting generalist feedback. Yeah. But like, let's say there's like 50 questions or 40 questions or even 30 questions and something like that. You know how it is when you've got like a bunch of questions and there's five choices, mm-hmm. the first mm-hmm. five you're paying attention to. But after that, you're like, I just want this to be over. Yeah. Um, yeah. so we interview people directly. And one of the things I tell people about when we, when we, do the feedback because we have a whole process that's governed by like psychological process and, and all that. When we're doing the feedback, the thing that I tell people is like, Hey, you know, feedback can be um, accurate, meaning you see it in yourself and you've actually noticed it in yourself or you've received this feedback before and you actually acknowledge that's a part of it. And now you're just getting feedback from, from people who are going to further support that hypothesis. So it can be accurate. It could be inaccurate. Meaning it's not that you think it's wrong, like you're rejecting it, but it could just be that you have a blind spot and you don't see that in yourself. Or what it could be is that it actually is inaccurate. So someone who's very influential has, for whatever uh, reason, formed an opinion about you. And it could be that they formed an opinion about you and they're just very charismatic and they're able to influence people around them. Or it could be that they feel threatened by you, angry at you. They want your job. They want you out of the space. So they're intent and they're charismatic and they're intentionally forming an opinion. Or it could be, it could have been true at one point in your career and you've stayed in the same business group or same company and it's no longer true about you, but that reputation has followed you. So something that is, uh, that you'd say is inaccurate could just straight up be wrong, or it could have been right at some point and, or uh, it's not right at all. And whenever, and, and then of course there's neutral, like a, that's another way we engage with it. Whatever feedback is, it's like, I want to be curious. Like, is this a perception yeah. that's held and it's an inaccurate perception and it's totally inaccurate? Or is it a perception that's held that was once actually true, but is no longer true? Or is this thing just total bullshit? It's not true at all. Cause that's different ways of interacting with feedback. If something's true, then you got to figure out how you want to address it or if you want to address it. If it was once true, but no longer is, then you want to figure out how you change that perception to reflect who you are today. And if it's not true at all, that's like a, then why would you try and change? Like, why would you go out yeah. and try and change your behavior instead of changing the perception? So it's, yeah. it's like, a. getting feedback is super crucial, but not all feedback requires you do something with it. It's about understanding where the feedback's from, how does it relate to you? And then what do you want to do with it?
0: How do you facilitate people do you help people filter mm-hmm. feedback that might be distortative? Mm-hmm. How how All do you time. facilitate what that was? So, Cause I, I mean, I'm glad I haven't done 360 review. I'm, I'm, I'm am I'm a delicate flower. And so I would, I would be, <laughs> I myself would be, and, and I get my, my, my student evaluations and, and I, um, boy, is that a tough day? Is that part, tough part of the year? Or, or when I, when I submit for peer review, you get, we get anonymous, terrible, you know, brutal anonymous feedback on, on, the research we do um these things really affect me and i i my inclination is to immediately believe everything that's being said to me um yeah how, how do you how do you handle that how do you
1: well and that so there's an interesting poll here because some there's a lot of people who will instantly believe it if someone said it yes. it's true oh. i'm terrible and they go yeah. all the way right i'm
0: yeah that's yeah
1: or the other approach is that's totally not true that person's full of shit they're out to get me it's <laughs> totally like and
0: i wish i was that person <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it, it, it's interesting because neither one of those approaches is effective, right? Because they're, they're both ways of actually not engaging with feedback. Even if you're the person that's like, oh, it's totally true. I'm the worst. Well, you're actually not engaging with the feedback because you're completely buying into something yeah. that can't possibly be 100% correct, right? Yes. Um, so are you familiar with thematic analysis? No. It, it's a, it's a, something that's used in psychology. So it's essentially like... Um, what we do is we interview people. Let's say we interview 10 people. We interview 10 people and we use standard questions for each person, but then we also use questions that are based on what's happening in the moment in the conversation. And this is another reason why we don't do surveys, is because like I want to I wanna like follow the, the trail. So for example, if someone says, if I ask someone a question like how someone is a communicator, and they're like, oh, they're terrible. Oh my god, they're <laughs> awful. And their ability to respond to that. That way, with that strength, I'm suddenly curious what their next answer is going to be. Because uh-huh. is their next answer something where they have to really think about it? Or is their next answer locked and loaded? Because if their next answer is locked and loaded, that means it's something they've talked about. And okay. and like they're they've been able to express themselves about before. And if they've expressed themselves about it before, then it means it's like, this is either probably something that they will, they're something they've talked to other people about. It could be their partner, it could be their friends, it could be their coworkers. Oh, interesting,
0: and now interesting. suddenly
1: I'm interested in like, okay, well, just because someone's talking about it doesn't mean it's true. But then if I ask them the follow-up question and I'm like, okay, so what is it that, that sucks about the way they communicate? And they're like, well, uh, and then it, if they're uncertain then it's based more on a feeling than something it's usually based more on something that they've got feelings about rather than or they've salient. got like salient examples on. And yes. it usually says, they also haven't been like talking about it the way you can tell when people have been talking about it by their ability to express it clearly and directly in like a really clear way. Cause it's been and consolidated
0: also, into like an idea. It's been totally. consolidated into idea that they can purple. I see. I see.
1: I well, see. But then they also make a note that as you're talking to the rest of the people on the, this list, if, other people are saying the same thing, but using the same words and the same sentence structure, then you can see that people have actually been talking about it with each other. Mm-hmm. And then you become more curious about like, okay, tell me about that. So we get all of this data and we take really, really intense and like really well, not intense, but we take really mm-hmm. thorough notes. And then what we look for are the things that are thematically relevant. So how, what percentage of the audience has said this thing And then how clear did they say it? And we put it through this whole scaling Mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we create a report. And the report is basically like, here are the things that are thematically relevant. This percentage of your audience, it has to cross a certain percentage of the audience for it to be thematically relevant. And then within that audience, here's what degree of clarity they were speaking about it with. So we break it down. So instead of getting feedback like you suck, it's the like, you know, like it would be basically saying like, this is what amount of your audience says you suck on this specific thing. And here's the level of clarity with which they're speaking about that. Yes,
0: yes, yes, yes. It allows and
1: people to be more pragmatic about how they, how they interact
0: with feedback. Because, because it can be debiased in this way, or, or kind of, because it can be contextualized a little more mm-hmm. through the system, through this. Is it like a psychometric thing? I, what was it called again? Uh,
1: Thematic analysis thematic thematic yeah check it out okay. it's, it, it's an interesting one so it's kind of like my my take on thematic analysis because the thematic like true pure psychological thematic analysis has like like the system i'm discussing discussing with you is like very complex that we use uh uh-huh. but the but true thematic analysis is like pfft, even like sure, further sure. it's sure. like it, i'd say our approach is like heavily informed by thematic analysis it's it's a cool way of basically saying, like, it's a cool way of getting real deal feedback that as best as you can isn't biased by, like, human, human knee-jerk reaction to things. So, mm-hmm. for example, like, if someone, like, if you put out a record and someone's like, your band sucks, it's like, okay, cool, tell me about it. And then if they can speak to why your band sucks. So, like, so, for example, if it's, like, if I say Earth Crisis, I'm like, oh, Earth Crisis, okay, well, tell me about it. And you start yeah. breaking it down and then you figure out, like... Well, no, actually, this person is a true fan of music. Like they actually like music. And not only do they like music, they actually also really are into ideas and they're really into like political thinking. You're like, okay, well, this is a person who actually has some good background to be able to say what is a good or a bad band and what is their good or bad way of thinking. Then I want like of of thinking about politics. You start breaking that that down more. Well, how much do you like for example, do you like heavy music or do mm-hmm. you like hardcore? Or do you like punk? do like punk adjacent adjacent bands. And then with social uh, around ideas, it's like, well, what are the political uh, people that you do follow who has done it? Right. Mm-hmm. I want to understand is someone's opinion informed and so that it should actually have like a little bit of uh, weight versus uninformed. And just because someone's opinion is uninformed, doesn't mean they've got something bad to add. Sure. It's just sure. that you, you place it in the right place in terms of the feedback. So for example, let's let's say someone's opinion was uninformed, and there was like three people who had uninformed opinions, and they're all saying the exact same thing. It's like, this person's a jerk. It doesn't mean that their opinions are uh, unimportant. It could mean that like, maybe this person's just a jerk to certain levels of people in their organization. Maybe they view certain people as being like, you shouldn't be in this conversation. Or maybe that person was a jerk to one of those people, and that person went out and populated that idea with it. Or maybe one of those people felt threatened by that person. There's all sorts of ways that you interact mm-hmm. with the feedback. But essentially what we're trying to do is like, we want people to get feedback, but we don't want people to feel attacked by the feedback. We want yeah. them to be like, oh, like almost as if you went to, um, like, it, let's say you had uh, flat arches and you're, you know, the the person who we're working, it's like you have flat arches. You wouldn't take that as. Uh, insult you'd be like oh awesome so like I need some it's just empirical it's this
0: empirical thing it's a, it, it, it's, oh. it's 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 a it's a description of the state of my body it's a description right. of me yeah yeah so
1: it's like here's the feedback that you're getting about your leadership style or your style as a as a professional the whole idea is I want people to be viewing it from the most pragmatic way as possible yes uh,
0: so that they can engage with it as observers as observers mm-hmm. to their own I see exactly what exactly. what what which for me is like just <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that completely allows me to take critiques much better. When it's, uh, I'm just like a dispassionate observer of the things being told to me. Um, it puts me in a much better, more receptive state to, to kind of Mm -hmm. hear the hard truths or to imbibe things. Um, Mm -hmm. and that, it kind of reminds me what, and this is something you you were talking about. Um, is this called thematic? What was it? Thematic? Thematic
1: thematic analysis.
0: Thematic analysis. So Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of like all the psych, all, I, I talk to psychologists a lot. Um, friends um, that tend to be thoughtful people. But I noticed the, the the heterogeneity in the approaches, the schools of thought. I do compassion based stuff. Oh, I'm into them, I'm not, uh, uh like I'm into schema therapy. These different things, CBT. Um, what what were you drawn to stylistically? Shouldn't I shouldn't even say stylistically. What what tools were you drawn to as a psychologist and as a counselor?
1: Well, CBT was like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy was like my, that's where I put my, my focus in very much um, the transtheoretical stages of change model, which is kind of like classic addiction. Uh, I practice that in my, in my work now. So like, if I think about change and I think about it in that model, it's like the stages of change being pre-contemplative. So I'm not even considering change. And I always, I I like to apply like a a question to each one, a type of question. So pre-contemplative, I'm not even thinking about change. So the question would be, well, why would I change? Right? That would be a pre-contemplative question. Then contemplative, uh, which is you're now kind of considering change, but it'd be like, well, what would I change? Because now you're trying to. You've gone beyond why, why would I change? You're like, okay, I understand why I change, but what would I change? Because now you're trying to frame up what you're agreeing to. Yes, And then uh, the next one would be preparation. And that's how would I change? Action, which is now you're actively engaged in it. The question here is how am I doing? This is where there'd be a lot of feedback on how well someone's doing. And then it would be maintenance this is the last one. So maintenance would be how do I keep this going? How do I do this? And then also, if you're really interested in change, would be well, what's next? And I apply that. I apply that in my therapeutic practice, but I apply that as a ton as a coach, and I, I apply that to like leadership all the time because, like, organizations, and you might have experienced this. You know, they're always changing. You know, like I love when oh. leaders are like, "We are in a time of change." Oh, really? Like, no, like really?
0: Just bear in the woods. You know, yeah. It's like yeah. It's <laughs> no, it's a, Everything's
1: changing all the time. You're always in a time of change. Um, but when organizations, like big or small, are creating change, I find that they usually populate the ideas in the wrong place. So where they're trying to, to, to take people is they usually start in the um, – preparation stage or even the action stage they'll announce a change
0: uh-huh, uh-huh, and they'll be uh-huh. like
1: either it's like here's the change and here's how we're going to do it or here's the change here are your marching orders like they either were going to start like they announced the change and here's how we're going to go or here's the change and this is what you need to do and that's why a lot of change initiatives are so like herky-jerky it's like a hundred percent of your population you know when I think about change it's like break it down into three ways and it, it's what i call the uh, 202060 20, 20, rule. You got 20% of people who are champions. You could tell them like whatever whatever the change is, they are change-minded people and they're like, yeah, like whatever it is, we're going to do it. And even yeah, if it yeah. sucks, they're like, okay, that sucks, but we're we're going to figure it out. 20% champions. Then you got 20% detractors. These are people that are like even if the change is something they like, they're like, "meh, well, you should have done it like this. Like they always have some opinion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The battle for change is never with either of those because the champions are going to do it no matter what, and the detractors are going to hate on it no matter what. The battle is always for that sixty percent in the in the middle. These are the neutral people, and neutral uh... people actually need to be taken through that whole um, uh, through that whole stage as a change model. And some of the people in that population are going to get it very quickly and move from stage to stage to stage. Some are going to take longer, but I want you to think more like the median of it. The median of that group, you have to gradually take them through the stages of change model. You have to like tell them, like, this is why we're going to be making change. You got to introduce the idea and get them, get that pre contemplative conversation going on. Then when you get into contemplative, okay, this is how we're, or or this is what is going to change. Then you get them into preparation. This is how we're going to do it. We yes. always focus focus on getting the median of the neutral group to move in that stage of change and like when it comes to detractors they will be sucked along with the momentum of just by the gravity group. yeah just by gravity and mm-hmm. then the champions are probably going to be a stage ahead like you know racing like let's, yeah, let's yeah, do it. let let yeah. let them get there the battle is never with the detractors because the detractors, they're not good or bad people. They're just people. They're just normal yeah. people, but they will suck up all of your energy. You could give them the best plan with the best reason. And they'll be like, well, what about this? And you're like, oh my God, <laughs> what's wrong with you? And uh, all of this really, what I'd say is like kind of like base level psychology. It's like, I apply this. I apply this every single day in every single conversation I have. It's about how do you help people make the changes that are are good for them, good for their teams, good for their businesses. I see, I see. Yeah.
0: And did you did you stumble on this model? So, so is this part of a school of thought, or is this like kind of just your own um, lens by which you view organizational change, mm-hmm. given what you do for a living? Or is this kind of a systematic thing that you came to through a school of thought through through um, through a school
1: of, uh, through a school of thought? But then this is my own take on it. Adaptation so, like, of it. Yeah, like CBT, like you know, they're and and trans-theoretical stages of change model. So trans-theoretical meaning that most many schools of psychology would would be playing with this idea that like the most. It's a very rudimentary uh, um, psychological tool. So like it's like the most kind of like very like you know year one learning as a as a therapist. I see. Um, It my that twenty twenty sixty rule is something that I came up with and empirically
0: observing the types of like. Organizations, you have to. So, is that really what you're focused on? Is helping organizations go through Mm -hmm. types of change?
1: Uh, Individuals, teams, and organizations. I see. Well, and and when I think about it, and and that's what I'm. My my organization does two things. One is leadership, and uh, leadership could be an individual, it could be a team, it could be an organization. So, it could be like for one person, a team of people, or, or just the organization. We're trying to change the leadership and change the culture in a healthy way. And then the other is communication training. So like how to give a good presentation, how to answer questions oh, effectively, how to have okay. tough conversations, how to write well. Um, what I spend my day, day, day with is working with CEOs or C-suite or very, very, very senior level professionals just because I've been doing it for so long, but we work with people from all different levels of the organization.
0: That's amazing. What What is it And by C-suite individuals? Are you mm-hmm. working with them on individual change uh, or yeah. change within the C-suite. Okay, okay. What if, <laughs> I'm very. Curious. So is this a long-term, how, how long-term of a relationship are you forming with these people, these C-suite people or these people that you're working with when you're working with individuals doing individual change?
1: My longest C-suite relationship would be nine years. Wow. wow, wow, wow. I, I, I usually work with people like ongoing for years and years and years. And that doesn't mean they're engaging with our whole organization. Uh, and also sometimes I work with someone for like two years and then we'll like, we'll pause and we won't work together for like a year or two and we'll come back. It, uh, the way that I, I look at it is that um, I'm here to help people when they're trying to really achieve something. And that achieving something, you know, it's just like if you were, um, Let's say you were never a runner, but you got in your head. I'm going to run. A, I'm going to run a marathon. Yeah. And that's totally doable. It's doable for most people. It's doable for most people with most abilities. And it's not doable for every single person, but it's doable for most people. For some people, it's as easy as getting up and being like, you know what? I'm just going to run and they're going to figure it out. But And that's a very small percentage of the population. For other people, they need some kind of resource. And it could just be like a running app. It could be like something you follow online. For other people, it could be like joining a running group. For other people, it could be getting like a coach or a running partner, someone who's really like good, a running mentor. And that's kind of like the scope of coaching. Like, well, what are you trying to do? Is it an enormous thing? Okay, are you one of that little percentage of people who can just do it? Great, that's awesome. Or do you want need just a slight intervention like you need an app or do you need this and this and this and that kind of like gauges up how much i or my company would engage yeah yeah i'm, I'm real cautious about like overcommitting committing into helping helping individuals teams or organizations because like you should just help the way that they need rather than like because very usually very often people be like again for running be like i need a running coach it's like no you don't you just you just need this app always give people what they really need rather than um, what they think they need, because what they really need I is see, going to get them I further see. and they'll maintain a better relationship with you.
0: I see. I see, man. Well, let's get, let's get to you, man. Then,
1: we only, we got, we're running low on time. Oh, I got to talk about I'm you.
0: I'm sorry. I, you? I'm curious about ah. the coaching stuff. Um, because I'm, I'm, yeah, again, I'm just curious cause you're working with super high performance people who are trying mm-hmm. to grow mm-hmm. and I'm surrounded by very high performance people and I'm just always trying to observe them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're peculiar people. They're weird people, you know, and, and I'm always just learning a lot from how people are kind of going through change and these people who are much smarter than me or i should just rather say much more talented than me. And I'm always curious about people who are experts and somehow growing and tackling things and pursuing change in some way. And I'm curious from your vantage point, what just, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to ask you questions. I, I'm i just stating my, my own curiosity, my own fascination is that like, you must see this day in and day out, and I'm curious what types of things you must learn because you must learn a lot from these types of weirdos that you amazing people that you work with. Yeah. And uh, this because I learned it from these people I'm around all day.
1: This is what I've learned, um, and I'm going to put it into terms of hardcore. Um, uh-huh. You could put out one cool record, or you could put out a lot of cool records, and it depends on your willingness to have someone help you. So, for example, yes. there are very few people. Who can run the marathon on their own from the couch to running the marathon? So there are very few people who just off their own talent and vision can write a ton of cool records. Walter Schreifels from Gorilla Biscuits, Quicksand—he's yeah. one of those few people who could like just get up and be like, you know, I'm going to run a marathon. I don't need any help. I'm going to figure it out.
0: Yes, because yes. he's
1: just a unbelievably talented person, and he really yes. hasn't run out of runway. Like he could just keep writing great records, help other Keeps people doing
0: cool stuff. It. Yeah, right.
1: But then there are people who are like really really talented but they kind of hit a they hit a ceiling and so let's talk about like capo and porcel it's like oh man these are today records are like unreal right shelter you know they're kind of figuring it out um and they're doing i love i love shelter but like they hit the reason mantra is such a cool record is because they had a producer and the producer who was also their engineer push them and i was just listening to the um meet meep podcast uh shout out to meet meep great podcast if anyone's interested in roadrunner records and the history of roadrunner records it's oh that's, amazing. It's, so, oh, that's dude, amazing it's so good it's so good you got to check it out and that's it's a like, great name yeah and he's going through every single catalog uh, number of of uh, roadrunner and doing these deep dive ones so he did did want to mantra and, and uh, interviewed those guys Oh, and those amazing. guys were able to write a, a next level record. Now these are people who had written tons of cool records, but they knew to get to that next level, they needed a producer. And that's what a coach does, right? It's like, it yeah. they help you refine your ideas and help you push it. And then they wrote mantra and it's this incredible, incredible record. Yeah. Um, and then you got people who can write a cool record one time, but then they're kind of like, I don't know what to do, but they don't go and get help. It's like, most people can write if you're talented and focused you most people can write a cool record not everyone can write a cool follow-up most cool follow-ups require someone to help you and yes. or, or like great collaboration or different influences so you can get pushed and just not everybody has like i mean first like not everyone can afford to get like you know in music a producer or amazing say, producer yeah or let's say professionally like a coach or a mentor or any of those things but it's that idea that For you to not just replicate success, but to get better and better and better and better, you need someone who knows how to stretch you. And for someone to know how to stretch you, you've got to look for someone who's like a professional at helping people like get to that next space. I know a ton of CEOs who, okay. So I know some CEOs who are like Walter Schweifless. Like, they're just like, you don't need any help. You are just like beyond the beyond. Good for you. I salute you. That's awesome. I know a lot of professionals who are like mantra era shelter who are like, Really got a strong track record, but for the thing they want to do, they need someone to help, and that's usually my sweet spot. Is like for real already people who've got a good track record, but now they want to do the next thing. Yes, and then I've seen a lot of CEOs who've like hit who've hit a space, and they're like, okay, I've done pretty good. If they're willing to get a coach, then they can explore. Can they have a great follow up next? But if they're unwilling to, to get a coach, it's like, yeah, you might replicate success a little, but uh, but eventually you're going to drop off because you can't just keep knocking out the hits. I, I was just very recently like kind of saw a transition of a CEO was like, yeah, you, you did a hit record, man. But like you kind of blew it because you were unwilling to to get help and, or to, to have someone stretch you. You're just too ignorant. Like you just too, you believe your own shit too much. And that's they, that, that they blew right it.
0: there. Believing your own shit. I feel like, um, I know a lot of people and when what I do and it, it might have an analog with music too. But, um, and I'm getting excited because what you're saying is like, Oh, oh, this is like hitting me. And it's something I think about a lot because I'm around a lot of high performing people who are really, really smart. But in what I do, there's this mythology of like the lone genius. Everyone's a lone genius. I'm sure it's CEO. It's like, you're, you're, you're you know, you're, you're some Uber Um, you know, you know, fountainhead like person who just is ascendant and you do it all yourself. You're a rugged individualist. Um, within it, within academia, there's this kind of mythology of, oh, you're just a lone genius and you should do this all on your own. And that growth is like a fully kind of you're an person just pursuing things. So people I don't think pursue I myself, I'm faulty for this, don't pursue this because there's this kind of idea that you should perhaps do all this in and of your own self and that we all we're smart enough to do it. And it's like, no, I'm not. I, I, I'm very hyper specialized in very certain things. But when it comes to growth and pushing myself, it's like, I don't know that I could absolutely use a coach. I could absolutely use. Um, someone to help me facilitate, um, grow, realizing what I want to realize. But we're too stubborn to do those things, and so um, I don't see any of this in, in my world. I think we could really benefit from it. At least, yeah, does it's, that make sense?
1: It makes perfect sense. And yeah, this is again. I I don't know in your experience, but I I remember when I was younger, I never sought out a mentor, and no. I didn't I didn't grow up again with a strong family system, so like I didn't. I didn't have that kind of connection to my parents where they really like they gave me good values, but I didn't like they didn't help me kind of like form up being an adult. I had to figure out a lot of that my, myself. And also it made me like ignorant. Like I was like, I don't need it with help. I, I got yes. it. You know, yes. I know so much. And I hit a point where I was like, oh, shit, I've never had a mentor. I don't know anything about being a CEO. I don't know anything about being a business. And I, I've actually gone out and like sought out. Uh, mentors and I've, I've become very interested in surrounding myself with like very, and when I say yes. successful, I don't mean monetarily successful, but I I'm a firm believer in surround yourself with successful people, but it's, it's about how you define success. So for example, yes, let's yes, say you were yes. very interested in being a great parent, surround yourself with people that you are, are successful parents. If, um, if you're very interested in being a, uh, a great athlete, but an athlete that is, um, uh, excels at, athletically but is also like well balanced interacts with people well has good levels of self-care then find people who are successful with that you should always know what you want to be successful in it Spec- be very specific like for example if someone's like well i want to i want to be financially successful well that's not specific enough like no, really no. break it down yeah seek out those people and develop relationships with them because it's going to be a game changer for you because a, you'll understand their process. Most people are very willing to share with you and to offer advice and to help. But not only that, being around people who have a strong track record of success in these very specific ways, they carry themselves in a way that is very refreshing if you're someone who's oh. like searching for something like that. Yes, yes, yes.
0: And that's a world that w- I wasn't aware of until I kind of like started being around high-performing people outside of academia. In academia, mm-hmm. we, I think... We, we do have a mentorship mentee system, but it's institutionalized to the extent that I think, um, we almost devalue it a bit. And what I mean is that like, like, oh, we just have this, I mean, you've, you've done a degree, you just have a, you have an advisor and, and usually is this, and there isn't a lot of effort put in kind of the role of being a mentor, the role of what that means to like fulfill that role and, 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 and embody that role. And when I started being around, um, psychologist and, 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 and one of my best friends is a coach here. And the idea of purposefully seeking out mentors was something I was like, people do that? Like people do that. And that was completely foreign to me. I never, I never realized it never occurred to me because I'm like, I have this, um, kind of thick headed mindset of like being, you have to do it all on your own. But this idea that, oh, people go out there and are very serious about mentorship. Um, I also do a lot with finance too. It's like mentorship is really normal there. Um, and I'm just now starting to, or it took me a long time to realize the importance of that process. And that's, that's an even possibly other thing people do There's a world right. that I didn't really appreciate. And that I, myself as a mentor to students now take that role much more seriously. Wait, do you mentor people on, you must, are you a mentor yourself? Like yeah, to people I, within your organization and other.
1: Well, in my organization, I, I support my, the people that, that uh, I work in the company, but um, I I've met, I mentor business people. What I typically do is like very often, and I I'm a little reticent reticent to say this on the podcast, but usually what I do yeah. is there's a couple people that come to me a year a year, and I just coach them for free uh, based on where they're at in their life, especially if they're in a tough spot.
0: Okay. Uh, usually okay. I
1: take on a couple coaching uh, people. So for example, if if someone's in a spot where they have a really challenging toxic workspace, and it's just breaking them down mentally and they just can't handle it. I'll usually take on one or two of those a year just to to help out. And then um, um, I do a lot of mentorship for professionals who are just stuck in their career, but they don't need coaching. They just need need mentorship. Would you mind if I shared with you uh, like the model that I talk about when I talk about like mentoring and coaching and everything?
0: Yeah, 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 totally.
1: So mentoring from my perspective is such an incredible, incredibly valuable thing. But you you hear someone where you're giving advice, you're influencing thinking, right? And there's a lot of influencing thinking and there's a ton of advice given, but you're not putting your chips down. You're not saying I'm actually part of your development. Like I'm invested yes. in your development and I'm actually like in a way responsible for your development. Mentorship from my perspective is super healthy. It, it It's basically someone that you can go and bring ideas to. And they can help reframe your thinking from an influential. It's it's more influencing thinking. Got it. And there's no responsibility of the mentor for someone's success at all. And this is I, an
0: important intellectual distinction too. Um no. um no, this is interesting.
1: So that's one way that I or that's how I look at mentoring. I look at coaching cool. as a as a totally different thing. Yes. So coaching is Influencing is influencing someone's thinking. That's all you're doing. You're just trying to get them to think about something. And you're not necessarily responsible for their out- for the outcome. Instructing is showing someone how to do something. So it's like, oh, you're doing this thing. Here's a dartboard. I'm going to show you how to throw a dart and get it closer in there. There's how you stand. This is how you throw. This is like all of that stuff. And you ha- get them to do it, improve through iteration, go over and over and over again. Coaching lies in the middle of those two. Coaching is about framing up someone's thinking. And it's also about teaching people skill. And depending on what what you're working on, it could have like a higher percentage of like influencing their thinking and a little bit of skill or lots of skill and make a little bit of thinking. So a driving instructor is someone who is coaching someone because they're not just instructing someone on how to drive. They're also if they're like really serious about what they're doing they're also giving them a philosophy of thought about how do you think yes. about driving. How do you be a good member? Uh, how do you be like a good community member of the road? How do you think about if someone cuts you off, how do you think about that in a way that you don't become aggressive or get into their road rage? And actually how do you give people like sympathy and mercy when you're on the road to understand that, well, you know, driving is complex and people make mistakes or maybe someone just came from having a bad breakup or maybe something happened with their kid. Maybe they're driving like an asshole and you can extend them that kind of mercy Like a great driving instructor is coaching people because they're showing them the mechanics of driving, but also the philosophy of thought. And that to me is coaching. And if you're in a coaching relationship with someone, you're typically assuming some kind of responsibility for where they go next. And it doesn't mean that if they fail at something like, you know, if a driver instructor, if someone gets in a car accident, like five days after they're done, they should get in trouble for it.
0: Sure, 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 sure
1: but you are invested in the outcome that you want someone to be able to get good at what you're doing rather than just giving them advice. So I view mentorship as like really, really important, but it's not that level of like, I'm taking, I'm assuming some level of responsibility for you where coaching is like, I am assuming some level of responsibility for what happens
0: next. No, it makes total sense. It makes total sense.
1: Now we're heading off towards the end. Um, Everyone, we're going to do a part two of this because like, you know, as we, as we got into it, like I said, we're starting a longer format and it allows us to have like a richer conversation, which is super cool. But the thing that we didn't get to do is Nathan, we didn't get to really talk about your world, which I am super fascinated with. So we're going to set up a part two and then uh, I'm not sure how we'll stagger these, whether we'll do them back to or, back or what we'll do, but we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens, but we're definitely doing a part two. All right. So as we close off, I have three questions for you. Absolutely. Okay. Um, first, if you think about leadership. How does that play out in your role
0: today? If I think about leadership, how it plays out in my role today. It's complicated because I embody like kind of multiple roles as a leader, both as like a research, as a, as a professor, you kind of have you're, you're kind of split between these two worlds. People usually think it's just teaching, but it's like, so I teach and advise students and that's great. And, and there's a very specific kind of formulaic role as a leader, a role as a leader that I, I kind of embody there. Um, but most of my time is spent as a researcher and working in groups, having to kind of get people to believe in my terrible ideas that we're trying to <laughs> implement and and w- projects that take forever and that are kind of very costly and very strange and they take coordinate. I was just on the call with my, my, my colleagues in Korea and having to kind of deal with multiple people um, towards a very kind of, Risky goal um, with battling between time zones, competing interests, et cetera et cetera, having to wrangle these people together and inspire them to commit to a project and to fulfill very weird projects um that are high risk and fail a lot and take a long time to pay off my role as a leader spent a lot there trying to manage that and trying to kind of um, work with a team and kind of being emotionally intuitive and trying to get people on board with what we're doing, whether it's our our research assistants or whether it's my other PIs, my other principal investigators as well, who might get depressed or et cetera, et cetera. Does that Mm. answer the question at all? It
1: does. So I'm going to ask you a follow-up question based on that. Where do you know you're really good in that leadership role? Like, where do you know you've got like really a strong approach and also where do you know that you've got real challenges that you got to work on?
0: yeah yeah um, start with the start with the good though start with the good it's always it, you know and it's a terrifying question because you're always like what if i'm not good at this what if what if what if like <laughs> so as a psychologist you can probably see the the gears in my brain turning and the, like uh, the self-doubt pouring over me but what i'd say i'm good at is like i think i'm pretty good it goes back to the conversation we had earlier it's like i think i'm pretty good at at, at understanding having some emotional intelligence about in particular the people under me in particular like who don't have authority within the project understanding where their strengths are understanding what their style of work might be um, and trying to inspire them to be involved in a project and have a voice within the project and also you know, and so kind of understanding emotionally where they're coming from and what drives them and where their strengths are that's i think a real like one of my strengths as a pi and as a leader within projects
1: um challenges where where where, challenges. where do you know you need to get better
0: challenges speaking up mm-hmm. i'm i'm too delicate and too i'm too um i, I have terrible boundaries mm-hmm. terrible boundaries I know that's something I need to get better at terrible terrible boundaries and i'm bad at being co- at being confrontational and speaking up and sit, delivering news that might be unfortunate and might kind of hurt someone or, or might have the potential hurt someone it actually might not people are much more thick-skinned than I am but in delivering hard realities and truths to people terrible at it terrible especially my peers and people above me that's where I'm yeah gotta work on that
1: well thank you for the vulnerability let's talk about that next time because I got some ideas that I'm gonna I'm gonna oh uh, okay pass you there okay Yeah, yeah the last question is the hardest question at all of all you can change this think about like someone afterwards might be like what that was your answer? Think about it. It could be different anytime based on okay. whatever your mood is. So I won't hold this to you. No. Okay. Three best hardcore records from Florida.
0: Oh my God. I got to think about this. I got to think about this. Oh. Oh, 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 oh,
1: punk too. It could be punk hardcore
0: on the spot. I might have to get back to you on this. Um, cause I'll, do I go with Roche Motel, the old hardcore stuff? Do I go with, uh, uh, mm, 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 mm. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a tough one. I'm going to start with punk. This is going to be a weird one. Left field. Uh, I hate myself. Self-titled on no idea records. I think it's the self-titled one. Brutally beautiful, emotional, um, uh amazing album i lo- love it love it fits very specific time and place in florida punk rock history um mm, As suck misery index might be unlicitable to some people uh great grind album i think a- a- an amazing grind album uh grind aficionados might might disagree with me there but I- I- i'm gonna i'm gonna take a stand there um mm, 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 mm. other one what's it would be oh reversal man revolutionary summer ten inch beautiful inspiring lyrics um, um great call out to earth crisis there they have a kind of confrontational earth crisis anti-earth crisis song it's it's, it's fantastic um those would be three records i think that, that are, are i'm going to come up with other ones i'm going to i'm going to doubt my list when i get off this but those are the three that kind of resonate kind of stick in my craw right now they're the kind of yeah i love it
1: man all right well listen yeah. as we're closing off we're definitely doing a part two so everyone you know know that one's coming uh anything that you want to plug anything you want to mention where can people find you oh we forgot to mention your twitter handle what's oh, your yeah. twitter handle what's I your twitter have, handle
0: i have the straight edge twitter at straight edge on twitter you can find me um the cm punk fans find me uh random people find me and are disappointed that it's like a guy talking about economics find me on twitter that's the best place to find me um SodaLabs.io is a, a lab I'm affiliated with. Um, I have another lab coming up that'll be, be public. I have a link tree, you know, link tree, you know, backslash uh, Nathan Lane. You can find okay. all my stuff there, all my podcasts and articles there.
1: So. Heck yeah. Awesome. So everyone check out, he's the first straight edge person on Twitter, obviously, since he got straight edge. <laughs> the second person, second straight edge person must have been like, God damn it. I missed that one. Yeah. So congratulations on that, that great you. Uh, handle. You got it. You've got thank it in you. perpetuity. Um, yeah. Everyone check out uh, Nathan's uh, link tree. Check out all the links in there. His podcast, all his work he's done is very compelling. And man, thank you so much for being on the show and we'll see you in the next one.
0: I loved it. Thank you so much. Uh, your team is great. Uh, I, I, thanks for having me. This was fun.
1: Absolutely. All right, yeah. man. I will talk to you soon and everybody will see you in the outro. Spencer, drop the beat. Yeah, I laughed so hard. This was such a cool conversation. Totally unexpected. And you can hear in the beginning that Nathan was like, I don't really, I want to talk about you. And <laughs> I was kind of like sucked into it he kind of got me and got me into that space and I loved it it was really uh it was really fun to have someone flip it on me like that and to get into that conversation so Nathan thank you so much for being on the show and I really look forward to putting out the second episode where we'll really focus more on you and, and your role in leadership in the world and in, in your organization being a person that is an observer of other people so I've always been in the position of helping other people or coaching other people or mentoring other people and like professionally, that's what I've done. And then also I've had this whole other life where I'm in front of a band and I'm heading up a band or I'm playing guitar in a band. And there've kind of been these two different experiences. Like one is all about other people and then the other one is all about the expression that you're doing and you're you're essentially kind of the center of attention. It was this interesting thing where Nathan brought my two worlds together, where I was kind of talking about being a business person and a therapist and a punk and just moving through the world. And it, it's just a good reminder for me at least that like, All parts of who you are matter at all times. Some parts are gonna be more present in some situations than others, but there's no part of you that's like gone at any time. It's all there and you get to kind of pick and choose how you bring things forward. And I, I, at least for me, part of the enjoyment of life is being able to figure out how I bring more and more and more of my entire self into every situation. And uh, Nathan, it was just such a fun, really interesting exchange. I really appreciate it. So as we're closing off, everyone, definitely watch out for part two. And I am your host, Aram Arslanian, and this was One Step Beyond. What?